Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number seven of Off the Block Swimming Podcast. Thank you all so much for downloading our show today, wherever you're listening. I'm your host, Robbie Cox. Now, a massive week ahead on the podcast, and we are kicking it off with a man widely regarded as one of the fastest men of all time at 47.05 from the semifinal in Beijing 2008. He's a three-time Olympian, and of course, I'm talking about Mr. Eamon Sullivan. Had a great chat with Eamon a few weeks ago about how he got started in the pool, his phenomenal 2008 Beijing Olympic experience, breaking the world record. We also discuss his constant battle with injuries, food, restaurants, family, and Eamon gives us his take on the controversial 2012 London Olympics. So get set for a great episode, grab a drink, grab some snacks, because Ep 7 with Eamon Sullivan starts... Now. Away they go. No problems with the start. There is two 100s in the second in it. Gary Hall Jr., the extrovert, and Ian Thorpe battling it out down the pool. Thorpe is starting to go away from him. Oh, he's blowing him away now. Thorpe's gone more than a metre on Van der Noot and the finisher of all eyes is the great Phantom Butterfly, Susie O'Neill. He's coming back. Oh, he's shot. He can't do it to him again. Chavez in the white hats. Vets in the black hats. And Vets has got it. I cannot believe he's done that. Thorpe to Thorpe. Thorpe to the hall. Thorpe goes in. Australia win. Joining me today on the show is a three-time Olympian and a triple Olympic medalist. And when you add alongside that, former world record holder, current Australian record holder, still in the 50 freestyle, world champs, Com Games medalist, it's easy to see why he's thought of as one of the world's greatest sprinters of all time. I know I certainly feel that way. That's why I've been chasing him for as long as I have to get him on the show and have a chat. So it's a massive welcome to Off the Block Swimming podcast to Eamon Sullivan. Mate, how are you going? Well, thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Not a trouble at all. Now, like you said, the pandemic, um, you know, it, it continues to affect people and depending on where you live, depends on how you're affected. I know, you know, you've got several restaurants over there, family, two kids. How have you been through all of this? Uh, I think like everyone else, it's up and down. Um, definitely when it all started to hit and everything was closing down. Um, yeah, all over the place. I think going from being uh, at full capacity to closing up five venues within the space of two weeks was, was pretty chaotic. Um, you know, parents that are over 70 years old and um, family and young kids, you, you sort of were wearing many hats through that period. So trying to make sure everyone was okay as well as all your staff. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty crazy couple of weeks. Um, touch wood, WA is going relatively well at the moment. We've got, still got the hard border closure and uh, we're back to sort of, 50 to 70 percent occupancy at most of our places and yeah. and everyone's out spending money so so can't complain with that we're able to have uh you know be out and about and people at the footy so it kind of feels a little bit normal but at the same time you just all you have to do is look at the news and and see that it's definitely not normal and we're just a bit lucky to be where we are at the moment so yeah, counting my blessings at the moment to be semi-normal and uh fingers crossed we can uh get on top of everything and and get everyone back to normal as soon as possible. Yeah, it can all change in an instant. You only have to look at what's happening in Melbourne. And, you know, I live in mm. Sydney, so every day we're kind of looking at the numbers. They seem to be okay at the moment. But as you said, though, WA is pretty good. Your birthday isn't too far away, mate. Have you got any plans? Considering you've, 
you've been locked down for a while and you haven't been able to get to see people. Have you got a shindig, get everyone around? Uh, not really. I think, um, yeah, it is soon actually. I hadn't, hadn't thought about that. But, there you go. I do my um, research, mate. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, no, we might try and head down south maybe just with a few mates and, and the kids. There's no holidays without the kids these days. So, um, yeah, probably maybe try and head down south for a weekend and, and head, head to a few wineries. Now, I know obviously over in WA, I've, I've had a few of the, you know, West Australian stars on. I've had Zach Inserti, Brianna Throssell, obviously over there's Bre- uh, Blair Evans as well and Holly Barrett, heaps more. They seem to be doing pretty well at the moment, mate, over in the West. Um, are you pretty proud of that? You've got to be happy with, you know, what's being produced? Yeah, I'm a little bit out of touch with swimming these days since I retired. But, um, but certainly I think WA um, has always kind of had that, that pretty pretty good team presence considering how small we are and, and, and um, you know, the facilities we have. So I think, yeah, it's always been a, a WA, um, kind of similar to Australia in general, per capita we produce outstanding swimmers on the swim team versus some of the, the larger countries in the world. And I think WA within that, um, I think, contributes their fair share as well. So it's always been something I've been proud of and, and being on the team myself. But I think... Um, you know, our lifestyle over here kind of just just works for being a, a, an elite athlete. We're pretty isolated and, um, you know, when you're in isolation, in, in an isolated state, you can go a bit a bit stir-crazy. There's yeah. always the, the hope that you can leave and do other things and get out of Perth. I think when you're stuck here, it's a little bit different. But, um, yeah, I think the, the facilities we've got over here with WACE and, and um, the support network and a lot of the professional staff that have helped us and helped me over the years, but I just, from, from traveling to Sydney, I was there for four years. Certainly, um, you know, my training team and, and the guys I, I, I had the privilege of working with over here were, I think, some of the best in Australia. Um, so I think we've got great support crew and, and, and the support around us to produce some really good athletes. Hey, let's get stuck into your swimming. And I know you got into it because of, of asthma, like so many other swimmers out there. What mm. sort of a young swimmer were you? Were you at the front of the line? Were you at the back of the line? Were you loud? Were you quiet? Where did you fit into those junior squads? I was, uh, I was the brat at the back of the line pretty early on. I, I do remember, um, I think I've told this story quite a few times. My, uh, I kind of went swimming begrudgingly. I never really enjoyed it when I was younger. And I used to, I think it was... Actually broke my leg at a swimming carnival in year two. Funny enough, that was my my first memory of swimming. Um, and then uh, around, I think up to year three or year four, I'd always used to. Uh, my my mum would drop me off at the swimming pool, and I'd she'd go off and and go shopping while I was swimming. And yeah. um, I used to walk in, sort of wave goodbye to her, and, and as I knew she'd be gone, I'd just walk back out again and sit in a tree and and just throw gum nuts or something and just sort of kill some time until she came back. And I think um, looking back on it, it was pretty stupid because I'd get back in the car and my hair would still be dry. So <laughs> I think it didn't take her long to figure out what I was doing. And, and one day she did a circle around the block and came back and I was sitting in my favourite tree that had a little dip in it, which yeah. was perfect for my small bun. And um, i never forget the look on her face as she was driving towards me and looking at me sitting in a tree when I was supposed <laughs> to be in the pool. So... <laughs> From that point on, she was she was in there every day and making sure I actually got in the pool. Um, and even then, I was I was piss farting at the, 
the back of the lane, pretending my kickboard was a boogie board and not really taking it seriously, doing what I need to, needed to do and, and no more. And I think that, you know, probably stands out as a sprinter mentality in general. So it's probably the, the writing was on the wall back then that I didn't want to do any more than I needed to um, and you can't do any less than a 50. So, um, yeah, from that point on, I didn't really take it seriously until I think it was, I think it was yeah, 94, year four, remember my coach at the time just said, why don't you actually just give it a, give it a crack and, and try and pass someone in front of you. And, and I never thought about that. So I, I gave it a crack and I actually swam past the guy that I used to muck around with. And, and we ended up getting a bit of a fight because as I was passing him, <laughs> he pulled my leg back and then I you know, pushed me underwater and I pushed him and, and um, the coach pulled both of us aside and, and told him to let me go in front. And, um, and then by the end of that, uh, that week, I was kind of leading the lane. And then I went up a level and um, it just sort of progressed from there. And I think I, I never, um, never saw the results of actually putting in effort and, and getting a result out of it. And I think from that point, I started to get addicted to that sense of satisfaction when you, when you finished a hard set or you did something that you'd never done before in the pool. And um, I guess that's what I've been addicted to ever since is that, that progression and, and always... Um, getting better at what you do. Um, and that's kind of where I, I can definitely pinpoint that's where it all started. It's funny. It's only ever the boys that really worry about who's in front of them or who they're trying to get in front of, isn't it? And I know even just coach, I can go back as far as just yesterday afternoon, I'm watching this group of boys just fight each other to see who's going to be leading the lane. Girls never care. They just go about their business. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it was, it wasn't, it wasn't from the point of wanting to, to lead the lane, but certainly that, competitive spirits always there even in training you always know the the warm-up heroes that sprint the warm-ups and yeah. and piss everyone else off and, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then they get to the main set and they cactus so I was, I was probably the opposite i took it as easy as i could until i knew there was some hard work to do and i'd make sure i did the hard work fast and i'd, I'd get out as soon as i could mate as the youngster did you play any other sports did you get amongst anything else yeah i, I played hockey till i was probably in grade 10 um Definitely not a great runner, um, but I enjoyed enjoyed doing that. My old man was a hockey player and, and long distance runner, sort of growing up, and always did that. But ended up, yeah, making the decision just to to move to swimming uh, in grade ten. I had, yeah, quite a lot of knee injuries. Um, common theme of my my athletic career is yeah. uh, is having injuries. So I, um, yeah, just had a lot of uh, pains in my knees and had to had to stop running. And that's when I made the, the full shift to swimming. And, and started training sort of 10 times a week. Hey, what uh, position did you play in hockey? My brothers um, definitely play hockey for, for many, many years. They still mm. play, not as well these days, because they're getting older and one has two kids. And I, I tell them, give it up. But they love it. They're just always out there. Come watch yeah. us, they say. I said, listen, I've watched a thousand games of you idiots playing hockey. I don't want to watch anymore. What, what position did you play? I was right wing. So kind of, kind of a sprinter position where you kind of could yeah. just hang out the side and wait for someone to give it to you and yeah, just knock and it try in. And be, yeah, basically. So yeah, it was sort of a mix between right wing and, and right inner usually. Okay, very nice. Now it is a swimming podcast. So I'll get off that. Um, how much, <laughs> how much of an inspiration was 1998 world champs in Perth? Because I mean, I was, I'm around the same age as you. So obviously I was watching from home, but it was over in, mm. in your state. Um, you only have to look back. Grant Hackett was there. I remember hearing on the coverage, you know, Ian Thorpe winning, you know, world champion at 15. Klimi was there, Susie, you lived there. How motivating mm. was, was that to a young Eamon coming through? 
Yeah, extremely motivating. Uh, I was there. I think my mum let me take a couple of days off swimming, uh, off school, sorry, um, during that time so I could go and watch. So I was there nearly every day, um, heats and finals, I think, uh, watching it. And um, I was sitting in front of uh, Clemmy's dad a couple of the days and I was too embarrassed to, to give my hat and ask for a signature. But my mum went up and gave my hat to, to Clemmy, Clemmy's dad. Um, and it got handed back to me two days later, signed exactly where I asked for it to be signed. And um, it was a pretty pretty special thing. And I think it was, it was back in those days where you wanted to get signatures of everyone. And I was running around getting this hat signed. And, um, yeah, the, the calibre of swimmers back then was just amazing. And obviously the, the Aussies had, a, had an amazing meet, obviously heading into Sydney for two years later. And um, certainly was uh, still a little bit blurry that, that whole week. But just being the age I was, I think I was... Uh, what was I? Two, uh, probably like 14, I think. I was going to guess. I just didn't want to get it wrong. I thought I'd leave there, it. There, there, thereabouts. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was just incredible. Um, yeah, definitely motivating. And uh, at that time my career, it sort of – I wasn't motivated to, to be in that position. I think I was just enjoying my training and, and didn't really think anything of it. I was just just excited by the sport in general and, and um, I think it, it probably helped push me along but not, not as um, – not from a point of wanting to be there, just from the point that I just loved watching it and competing at that time. Hey, 2002, I think you win a, a national age championship, I think in the 50 freestyle, I think you got second in the 100 as well. How were you as an age group swimmer? You know, very often, um, you know, mm. everyone develops differently. You've got the man children out there. We've got a, master, a mustache at 11 and, and you've got other kids who are 14 and 15, but they look like they're, they're mm. 11 or 12. So you've got ones yeah. that are going to be late bloomers. How were you around, you know, the age group and what sort of things did you struggle with through that age? Uh, I, was, I was a pretty late bloomer. Um, I think I, yeah, got my first first medal in 2002, which was, I think, the 16 age group. Um, I think I hadn't made a final to the year before that. So, um, yeah, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a child superstar by any means. And I think that was just purely from my work ethic and, and, uh, and not wanting to, um, to train too much i think it, it took me a while to get into that real uh, professional mentality um which didn't really happen until sort of 2004 uh, 2003 2004 so um yeah my first first age medal was 16 and then i had two more years and i was i was um kind of done and that last year i obviously made um the olympic team at, at 18 and that was my last age nationals so um yeah it wasn't a it wasn't a, a, a thing that I was doing from from early on and, and succeeding it definitely took my, took time for me to to keep improving and to 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 model my my training week and, and to get everything in the right place that took me to the level of, of getting to the Olympics. Was it difficult through those years you say you know 2002 was the first time you sort of finaled and medaled the years previous to that was that difficult to handle seeing those guys who are you know your age but they're looking bigger they're looking mm -hmm. stronger and you're still because for me as a coach, it's always, that's the hard sell to these younger guys. I'm like, listen, you're going to beat that kid in three years time. Mm. They're like, but I want to beat him now. And you're like, well, okay, listen, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, but he, he is mm. a size he is. What yeah. sort of struggles did you have? Um, I don't think I really had any struggles with that, to be honest. I, I definitely had a, a couple of guys in my age group that were always the guys beating me. There was yeah. um, two or three guys that were not necessarily bigger than me, but better. Um, and a couple that were bigger and better. And uh, yeah. I think it was more more localised to my age group that I was focused on. I wasn't really focused on anyone older than me. 
Um, uh, yeah, obviously, and, and age never really came into it for me. I think it's something that I kind of knew was always a limited time that you had to worry about, and it wasn't a, a big priority for me, but it was definitely my the guys I was racing against I wanted to beat. Um, and it took a long time to get to get there, and, and um, I guess it, it was just always a constant strive for improvement that was, was driving me um, through those years and just wanting to get better and better. 2004, mate, you mentioned it just before. You made your first Olympic team, head over to Athens mm. as a young fella. Yeah, were you ready for that experience, do you think? And I guess the follow-up to that is, do, do you think anybody's ready for their first mm. Olympics? So it doesn't really matter of age, you know, it's your first Olympics. Um, I think I was ready for it. Um, you know, I was lucky enough, Todd Pearson, uh, who was in Sydney Olympics, they got a gold and a 4 by one and a 4 by 2 um, had just come back from the AIS after Sydney. So I was training with him for quite a long time leading into my first sort of international meets and uh, obviously with someone that had been to an Olympics and, and been to world champs and all these meets, it was definitely a, a pretty good insight as to, to what to expect. So come, come the first uh, Olympic trials in 2004 that I went to that I qualified for the team, um, I remember him doing a talk to all the young kids at WACE that were sort of going to their first nationals and he pretty much laid out exactly what to expect and and uh, what it was like. So when I got there, it wasn't really a surprise. You know, it was a lot about a different difference from a normal to meet where there's camera crews everywhere, there's interviews, there's a lot of pressure that you just feel. And I never never imagined that that tension being able to be physically felt. And it's certainly something I guess I tried to tried to imagine. And um, and when I got there, I was like, oh, that's what he's talking about. It's pretty, it was pretty, pretty, pretty intense. Yeah. Um, so I think I was lucky to have have him as a mentor growing up and leading into those those sort of events um, that I knew what to expect. So when I got there, it wasn't something I had to deal with at the time. I was kind of mentally prepared for that. And um, you know, come the Olympics, I qualified with him for the for the four by one, obviously. And I think um, having that person to chat to and 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 travel with and know what to expect definitely made the whole process a lot easier. And and um, you know, being an eighteen-year-old on the national team, swimming swimming alongside Klimi and Thorpe and and the guys that I grew up idolising was pretty daunting. But having you know, again, having Toddy there and another mate of mine, Adam Lucas, who made the team, um, it was definitely a, a easier transition to a team that I guess as an eighteen-year-old I didn't quite feel um, uh, deserving to be there. Sort yeah. of, you didn't at that point. I didn't know whether it was a lucky swim or a a lucky year and just happened to be the right place at the right time. And um, I think I, I took it with both hands and, and really enjoyed the experience and managed to make the, the, the final of four by one um, and swim my first final at Olympic level in my first go with Todd Pearson, my, my sort of training buddy and mentor and Clemmy and Thorpey. Um, so it's a pretty, pretty surreal experience. I certainly um, enjoyed it as much as I could. Mate, one thing going through your career that's a definite is there's a mental toughness to, to what you've had to endure and, and still overcome. Um, you know, the next four years, you battle injuries, which you previously had as well. You missed 2005 World Champs, but you still always managed to fight back to your best. I mean, you know, you went on Com Games in, in Melbourne, broke some longstanding Australian records. For all the young swimmers out there listening to the podcast, talk to me about that mindset during those setbacks with injuries because you seem to be someone that always bounced back. And, and yes, physically, but you know, more mentally, how did you sort of navigate those? Um, I think, you know, for one, 
I worked a lot with a sports psychologist uh, through WACE um, and that was something that was always available to us. And it's just something that was always part of my career and, and talking about things and, you know, but I, I certainly was a, um, and, and still am an, an emotional person, I guess. I, I'm, I'm extremely competitive. Um, you know, I do have my down days, um, you know, when things don't go to plan, when things don't go well. And um, I guess my process was always, um, when I was injured, I'd, I'd go pretty pretty dark and pretty down for a few days and um, I'd, I'd just get to a point where I'd just snap myself out of it and almost hit the reset button. So it was always about, um, you know, enough. You know, I guess the point where I'd be sitting at home and I'd sleep in from training um, and I'd go, okay, enough's enough. What do I need to do? Um, and I'd kind of map out, I'd look at what I can't do. Um, you know, obviously strike that off your week, but then also look at what I could do. Yeah. I guess that's something I had to develop pretty early in my career when I was, I was had chronic shoulder problems from 15. I'd had two hip surgeries before the Olympics in 2004, yeah. um, you know, and, and multiple other injuries along the way. So for me, it was I either had to quit and, you know, due to injuries or find a way to, to be able to still get the same results um, and compete uh, at that level. And for me, it was always finding a different way to train. I think being a sprinter and, and, and developing into a sprinter um, and my training regime, it, it, I guess at the time, was probably not, uh, not groundbreaking, but certainly something that not a lot of people did um, or did successfully, I guess, was, was, was training different. And I think um, middle distance swimmers historically uh, and even back to, you know, the, the late 90s, early 90s, everyone did the same training and they just happened to swim different races. Yeah. Um, and you, you talk about a lot to a lot of the coaches and, and um, you look at where it is now and it's so, so different. Um, and I don't think we're on the cutting edge of it, but I think we did it um, at the right time in my career that I was able to, to get through those injuries because of the way I was training. It was more about, um, for me, it was power to weight ratio. And when I had my hip surgeries, I guess that was the, the thing that really... Uh, I tried to uh, change was okay. My hips are out of action. I wasn't a great kicker anyway, and I never, never have been. You know, I, I just my I've got teeny tiny legs that don't have many muscles. Um, and whether that was due to the, the hip surgeries and not being able to really get the strength of my legs back then, but, yeah. but what I did was uh, focus on my upper body strength. So after those hip surgeries, I was back in the pool after a week but I had my legs strapped together. I had a pool boy on and, and straps around my legs and I'd just swim a lap at a time and touch the wall, turn around and swim back again and just do that for an hour, hour or two, just to be in the water. Mm. Um, but through that period, it was um, obviously when your hips are more buoyant with a, a pool boy in, you're able to really put on some big paddles. You can really feel the water. And for me, it was all about developing uh, my, my stroke, my technique and my underwater catch. Um, and in the gym, in the gym, pairing that with upper body strength. Um, and I went from, you know, as a, as a kid, barely being able to do 10 chin-ups in a row to be able to do, uh, I think towards the end, I worked on trying to um, do as many chin-ups as strokes um, as fast as I could. So I think I used to do 38 strokes in my 53. So I've tried to get 38 chin-ups done as quick as I could and try and get that time down. And yeah. Um, you know, I think my best was 67 and a half kilos for one, one max chin up when I was weighing 75. So 
it was nearly, um, you know, my power to weight ratio was something that really took off from a young age because I was forced to, to get that strength when my legs weren't working that well and, and I wasn't able to train them. So I think when that started to work, it was always, um, you know, a positive sign that the things I'd worked on had, had delivered results. And I think just from a young age, I just, I had the mentality of, well, I've been, I was quite often injured before a major meet. It was just part of, part of my process, I guess. And, and uh, from a young age, we just always said, well, we've got nothing to lose. Let's just race. Um, and I managed to have great races um, off the back of injuries, off the back of less training. Um, and it just gave me that confidence that I could get up and race whenever I wanted to from a, from a young age and that sort of carried forward. So I think it was that, that mentality from a young age of always trying to find a plan B to still get some training in, but also to work on your weaknesses when, when there was an injury or some sort of setback. Um, and that sort of carried forward with me through my whole career. No matter what injury I had, I was always finding a way to improve another weakness that I could work on as opposed to just sitting at home and feeling sorry for myself. Well, mate, I think it's one of the reasons why I really did want to chat to you because I don't think you get enough credit sometimes for those sort of things. I think definitely thinking outside the box in terms of training and always finding a way to, you know, to get back in the pool and to do it. And also, as I said, mentally always finding a way to, to navigate around, you know, these hurdles that were getting put in your way. I know for you, it became fairly normal to, to do it, but mm. I can assure you in talking to lots of people on the podcast, that that's a different mentality. Um, not everybody has that mentality in terms of like, oh, that's another setback. All right, let's go. I think it's it's a champion mentality and, and you know, one that I've, you know, spoken to Patria Thomas on here, Dan Kowalski on here as well. Mm. And they certainly went through their fair share of, of injuries and always found a way out. So I definitely think it's a great takeaway for listeners that it's a champion's mentality that doesn't matter what gets put in your way, you, you always seem to find a way around it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, that paired with I had nothing else to do at the time. I didn't, <laughs> I, you know. Hey, don't shoot a, it down. I just built you up <laughs> as a superstar. Now you're saying you had nothing to do. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? I think it's yeah. um, quite often with swimmers, it's, it's, um, it's, it's not a, a sport where you're getting paid well from a young age to, to stick yeah. with it. And I think it's a combination of, of having parents that weren't pushing me into the sport too much that I, I disliked it from a young age. I sort of took it at my pace and, and I, found, I found a way to love it just on my own bat. So that obviously made me a lot more committed to it than just doing it because I was told to, um, you know, paired with, um, you know, never not having a passion from an academic side at a young age. So sport was important to me. And mm. I guess that's what, what drove me as well is that I, it's what I enjoyed at the time. I wasn't, if I was studying to be a doctor, I guarantee you I probably would have quit to, to, to start studying. So. I think it was a sort of a perfect mix of the right mindset with, with the right sort of lifestyle and, and having a family that supported me through it all as well and being able to focus on it and, and give it everything I needed to, to, to get through. So I think, um, you know, I certainly wouldn't have got through those times without the support of my parents, my family and, and the guys at WACE and, and the physios and, and, um, and also my coach Stolly as well of, of innovating that training to accommodate those issues. I think when, when those sacrifices aren't made by the coach or that willingness to adapt a program, then it kind of forces people to, to give up if there's no other way around it. So I think that was probably lucky at the time that we were able to, to, to shift and adapt and, and, um, and to, to create that sort of sprinting mentality and that, um, you know, something is better than nothing kind of training program. And that's kind of what we stuck with over the years. 
Well, it definitely worked. You know, talk to him about 2008, uh, the Olympics in Beijing. And, and I'll get to the meat itself in a minute because I've got a few different questions about that. It was a massive meat for you. But you know, in terms of the lead up, something that's always interesting to me is, is when, you know, people have such a, a major meet where they break world records and they just seem to be always on swing pretty fast, which you were in, uh, in Beijing. What went so right in the lead up? Um, was was there something that changed? Was it training? Was it a great block of training? Did you, you know, was something a little bit more innovative? Uh, a lot of injuries. So I think, um, you know, there was injuries always seem to go hand in hand with me swimming fast. And I, I kind of said this before that I think it stopped me from overtraining the injuries I had. So I guess I look at some of the years of my career when I never had injuries, I actually got to the point where I, I could string together three or four months of really, really heavy training. And that's quite often when I wouldn't be swimming well because I was, you know, my, something I learned later in my career, my physiology and my, my body doesn't handle uh, a lot of kilometers and a lot of fatigue. And um, it definitely gets to the point where I wasn't able to get up and race fast when I wanted to. I think when I was injured, uh, it almost put me in a, in a state of, of semi-taper. Um, you know, you'd, I'd get to a point where I'd train very, very hard um, and I'd string three, four weeks together of really good training and I'd get injured. And I'd sort of slow back down and almost force myself into a little bit of rest, um, recover from the injury, do it again. So it's kind of, I guess, I'm, I'm not a coach, but that sort of periodic training yeah. program where you sort of work up to a peak, come back down and, and it gave me a lot of time to work on my technique and more drill, drill focused training and recovery um, and getting my technique right rather than pushing through. And I think a lot of athletes know when, when you're tired and fatigued, your technique can go, to, go down pretty bad. And if you're training bad technique, especially as a sprinter, um, you have that habit of sort of hunching your shoulders and just wanting to force yourself through the water mm. as opposed to find that, that ease of technique and, and using your technique to create speed rather than that pure grunt. Um, and I think if you train that too much, it just becomes instinct when you want to, swim fast you just you you try and grunt your way through it as opposed to rely on your technique and your your strength so i think my injuries helped develop my technique um it helped my body recover and and um you know i didn't know it at the time but that was kind of why i was able to swim well when i wanted to because i was never at a point that i was overtrained that i needed to taper for three weeks to 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 do a good race um certainly happened when i moved to sydney and didn't really get injured much i spent four years in a pretty average state of, of, of not feeling that great and not swimming that well. Um, and it took when I came back, when I had two shoulder surgeries and I made a comeback to realise that, you know, I went from swimming 45 k's a week to 15 k's a week. Um, and in the space of six months, I, I managed to go, I think, 21.6 or 21.8, whatever it was in shorts. So um, that was something I wish I learnt earlier in my career, uh, something that I kind of always could... Couldn't quite put my finger on it, but it was sort of, um, it was definitely part of the, and that's kind of why I don't, I'm not um, bitter about all the injuries I had because I think it made me the swimmer I was. Mm. Now, mate, anyone that remembers Beijing in terms of that 100 freestyle, remember that sort of back and forth you had with that world record. You, mm. you know, broke it first in the leadoff in the relay, 47.24. Alain Bernard comes out in the semi final, goes 47.2. Then you walk out in your semi and casually just go 47.05. So it's the two are playing tennis. You know, still to this day, you know, those are some of the fastest times in history. 
before we go to that final, you know, talk to me about that battle. Was that something you were conscious of or were you just in your own lane when you walked out there? Um, in, the, in the lead up, yeah, definitely in my own, in my own headspace. I, I do remember um, purposely not looking at his semi-final. I think the tendency to watch other people's races um, in the, in the, the marshalling area is always uh, can either work for you or it can, depending on what type of person you are. Yeah. And I remember I purposely sat in the corner and just looked at the wall and, and tried to just think about what, what I was doing. I didn't want to know what he was swimming at the time. And I heard the crowd cheer pretty loud, so I kind of assumed he did a pretty good time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I walked out there not knowing that he'd broken my world record that I set a couple of days before and was just able to focus on my race completely. So, um, and then, you know, fast forward to the final, I did the opposite of that and it didn't work for me. So it kind of shows the two different ways of, of thinking about things and, and the effects it can have. Well, let's get to when it went right for you. What did go so right in that 47.05, do you think? Uh, I mean, I, I just was completely confident in myself. I, I executed my race plan. I, I didn't think about anyone else, didn't look at anyone else, even though there's obviously seven other people in that race. And I was... I was swimming next to Peter Van and Hoogerband, mm-hmm. I think, um, and a few other guys. And, yeah, I just uh, was just in my, in my lane, had the blinkers on, the, nothing else came into it. I think that's um, – I didn't try. It was probably one of the easiest races I've ever swum, and that's yeah. kind of what, what I refer to when I say if you try too hard, especially in sprinting, you can go slower. It gets to the point where you need to rely on your technique and your power. And um, – I think I did exactly that. It was it was the easiest race I've ever swum, and it looked like the easiest race I've ever swum. Yeah. Um, so I think that's where um, where everything went right. The flip side of that, the final, you mentioned it. Well, where did it slightly go wrong mm. in there? Well, yeah, in the lead up to that, I, I think that race went so well. I, I I knew I had more in the tank, and I felt like I did. Um, and I, I think. The error we did was was we then started talking about Elaine Bernard for the final, as opposed to talking about what I needed to do yeah. to swim my fastest race. Um, so that that final, as as far as I'm concerned, was kind of over before it even started. From our our mentality of of assuming that I could swim my race based on where Elaine was going to be, and I decided that I was going to try and save some energy for that second fifty and still get out in front of him by about, you know, a quarter of a body, half a body length. Um, so I was pacing myself off him, which, you know, as history shows you, he turned in front of me as yeah. opposed to me turning in front of him. So I should have got out there and, and do what I did best, which was get out fast and hold on. Um, so my race plan was out the window, panic set in, I started trying harder. And when you do that, you don't necessarily go faster. So, um, yeah, it was kind of um, rookie mistake 101 on the world's biggest stage when that's kind of what you say to an age grouper is just focus on your own race. And as a 24 year old, uh, after breaking world record and thinking that I was uh, pretty confident and probably a bit too confident, I, um, I focused on someone else and, and didn't do a terrible race, but it was uh, 0.1 of a second off where I needed to be 0.2 even. Um, and that made all the difference. So instead of being nice and easy, you were, you were trying to rip in and a tear and so we're just not yeah, holding. Yeah, no, I do remember that that's the biggest difference between those two races for me is one felt extremely easy and was 0.2 quicker. The other one was, was a battle the whole way and it was, it was lucky I went that fast, you know, the way I swam that race. So 
Um, you know, it's, a silver medal is not something to scoff at. And I think at the time, it's and even to this day, I'm I'm more disappointed that that I took that mentality into that race and and um, and didn't swim the way I I should have. That's more what's disappointing for me is that that opportunity was was lost from from one simple decision. Um, you know, coming second, I'm still very proud of. It's, it's certainly tainted by that decision that I made, but at the same time, if you if you ask the kid um, when he was 12, 14, when he gave up hockey and decided to keep swimming, if you had said I was going to win Olympic silver medal, I would have laughed. So I guess that's the hard thing to put into perspective is that when you're in that moment, it's, it's expectations and what you want is, is, is all you think about. But when I think about the journey I've had over my years and the people I met and, and my career, it's, um, it's still, you know, when we just we were talking about before now, you've got two kids and... Um, you know, in, in real life, as, as we call it, it's not retirement. You actually just get into, into to real life, something that you do for a lot longer of your lifespan as opposed to maybe a 10-year career. Um, puts things in perspective that I wish I also had back in the day is that a bad race doesn't mean much and you shouldn't be nervous because there's always another opportunity to swim fast. At the end of the day, it is sport. It's supposed to be fun and competitive and I think um, it's something that you don't really learn until you do retire from swimming is is that you probably wish you had taken it a bit more casually and just enjoyed it for what it was and not not think the the world's going to end if you have a bad race. Mm. It's interesting you say that. I, I was talking to Grant Hackett the other day and he openly expresses that his silver medals, he looks at as failures in, in his eyes. And, and he mentioned this on the podcast and another one uh, that he did here. And he says, you know, there's probably only a few people in the world that can understand that because, you know, for my for myself, I take that opinion that you just said, like, come on, you, you know, that's still a major achievement. How, do you look back uh, now differently than you did at the time? Yeah, I do now. I do now. And I think me and Grant were, were both pretty upset in 2008 with, with our silver medals and probably um, had the same, the same headspace, I think. Um, and again, his was just... Um, not looking over in lane eight, you know, and, and assuming that he was, he was assuming that he was ahead. And, um, yeah, at the time I, I probably, yeah, saw it as a failure, but I guess the more I thought about it, like I said, I, it's, it was a failure in judgment. It wasn't a failure in, in performance or, or achievement. It was that I deserved the silver medal based on how I swam that race. And I, I said that in my post-race interview was the best man won on the day because he, he did his race plan. He was, within 0.0 of a second of what, he, what he'd swum the day before and, and I was 0.2 off. So, um, yeah, I think the perspective of, of, of what level of failure it was at the time was probably a bit skewed and I think what I've come to terms with over the years is that the failure wasn't the, the silver medal. It was the way I, I mentally went into that race and, and actually swam that race. Hey, you came over and trained in Sydney. Uh, your coach came over as well. I think you trained out of the Ian Thorpe Aquatic Centre a bit and, and out of SOPAC as well. Jeff Hugel was in that training program, Libby Trickett, Andrew Lauderstein. How'd you go with that move? Did you enjoy Sydney? I love Sydney, yeah. It was, um, it was a lot of fun and, and like I said, it's very different to Perth. There's always something to do and, and um, the lifestyle over there is pretty crazy in a city in Surrey Hills and you know, just the access to life and, and different types of uh, people and, and things to do is, is definitely um, um, a busy couple of years for me, you know, from you go out to dinner a lot more and that's kind of where I 
my passion for food and hospitality really, really, I guess, sort of took hold was just seeing all these things that were so accessible to me and, and Perth is pretty spread out and we don't have those hubs like Sydney and, and Melbourne do where a neighbourhood has a cafe, a bar, a pub, or, yeah, yeah. you know, a locals night. It was, it was, it was a, a, yeah, I really, really enjoyed those four years. Very, very eye-opening from, a, I guess, what, what life is like not as a, a professional athlete, you know, and I think when you're in Perth, you definitely live in that bubble where you just, you stay at home, you cook your own breakfast, you cook your dinners, you're um, a lot more professional. And, and I guess going, going to Sydney, it definitely taught me a lot more about having to be restrained when there's definitely opportunities to go out to dinner more often or go out for a drink and, and all those sorts of things. Um, I guess from a, from a, a training perspective, yeah, it was, it was very different. I went from um, being the only sprinter, kind of, I guess, in my squad in Perth um and having a very specific program for me to being in a new program with like you said skippy and lordo and, and manabood was there as well guys that were all swimming my event or we were all swimming the same events um and it, it definitely changed how i guess looking back at it, it definitely changed me as a person and 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 the way i i trained and i think both Stolly and i probably didn't didn't notice that the whole four years um I all of a sudden went from being in a program where it was just all about me and I didn't have to worry about anything else and I was very, you know, removed from knowing how other people were training to, to being in a, a squad where there was guys that were very, 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 very resilient and able to back up every session and swim fast and swim longer kilometres and swim, you know, better uh, aerobic sets, whereas I relied heavily on wearing fins nearly every single meter that I trained um, just because of my shoulders and I started comparing myself to other people a lot more and trying to train harder and train more and um, on the back of that as well as not having as many injuries that's that whole four years I spent I think um, very overtrained most of the time and um, but at the same time it was great to have all those guys in the same squad and be able to push each other you know to the limits and, and do different sets and I think we definitely um, we had a lot of fun as a group and travelled around and and um, you know a very successful four years there with with the guys we had over over the world champs. I think we had a, a yeah a gold medal in two thousand eleven at the world champs and the com games in between that. It was um, yeah a lot of fun and yeah, but it was also challenging in its own way. Talk to me about your coach Stolly. What sort of a coach was he? You know, for you and. Talk to us about some of his philosophies, obviously not so much this Sydney part because we said, you know, things slowly started to change for you. But, mm. you know, in your peak before 2008 when the program changed, talk to us about some of those philosophies and how they helped you. Uh, I think for me it was more he was just open to change. Um, you know, before I started swimming sprints, um, he was very heavily focused on uh, so Adam Lucas and uh, a lot of the guys we had training with us in Perth was was more 200, 400 IM, 200, 400 freeze, you know, real, you know, definitely um, events that required a lot heavier training. Um, yeah. And I think it, it, it was a, a big challenge for him to, to do sprint programs and, and we were kind of learning together, I guess, and... I think that's kind of what worked was that he was open to learning and opening to change and trying different things. And that, at that point we didn't have anything to lose. I wasn't a, I wasn't a child superstar. I was a guy that could swim fast and was getting better each year, but you know, there was nothing to lose. Um, so I think it was sort of something that obviously he led. I never really um, had much input into what we did, but at the same time, 
I gave a lot of feedback as to what was working for me and, you know, the sets obviously showed that, but um, we were able to, to just change our, our training every year and, you know, for us, recovery became a big part of it. It was, I think it was once or once a week we'd do two and a half K just um, on our own. We'd rock up and he'd be there coaching the other guys and we could just do two and a half kilometres and yeah. get out whenever we wanted and we could do it however we wanted to. And there was days where I just wanted to get out of there. I'd put my fins on, my snorkel, and I'd just do two and a half K straight and get out in 30 minutes or 40, 45, whatever it was. Um, you know, and um, there was a bit of a, a bit of a, yeah, it was a, it was a good working relationship, I think. You know, it wasn't, this is my way and this is the only way it's going to happen. So I think, you know, I don't think you really had like philosophies that stuck. They, they always evolved and changed. And I think that's where we're able to adapt when, when different problems presented themselves. I talk to distance swimmers all the time on here, mate, about their toughest sets because, you know, that's like a mark of a champion. It's a tougher set. How did you get through it? For, for sprinters, I like to sometimes take a different tack. Like what were your favorite sets? What did you get pumped when you knew mm. you, you had this set coming up, you know, for what were you puffing your chest out and ready to go for? I didn't like doing any hard sets. That was, I was, I was a sprinter, mate. You should. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, for me, it was more people I love training with. I yeah. think that's kind of what made me train harder and train better was having someone to race with um, and that's what I loved I didn't didn't necessarily have any sets that I loved to do um, quite often it resulted in me vomiting which is never a, a pleasant one but they were the ones that obviously I think were the toughest ones for me um, I think uh, uh, yeah probably the two and a half k easy is my favorite set I was gonna was, say when you it. said that before I'd already knew this question was come out. I'm thinking, I bet he thinks that was his favourite set. <laughs> From a sprinter, that's kind of what it is, right? It's, it's doing stuff that's, that's easy to do, but you get a benefit from. And for me, technique was pretty key to my training. But yeah. I guess if we have to talk about speed sets in general, the ones I really liked um, were kind of ones you could quantify. Um, you know, doing... Like compared to middle distance, you'd be doing, you know, I don't even know a middle distance set, but you'd be trying to keep a certain pace. Um, and it does that relate to a race if you can't actually achieve that? I guess it's a something I always struggled with was trying to, to slow myself down and having to hold a speed for a certain time. For me, it was all just about swimming fast and, yeah. and trying hard and, and trying different things to get faster. Um, uh, our best set, I think my favourite one was, and it was kind of adapted from a middle distance set or a, an IM kind of set. Um, it was a Saturday morning set we did every week. I think every, yeah, pretty much every week. Um, and it was 450s um, uh, on, I think it was on a minute. Um, and we'd repeat that uh, eight, eight or ten times. Um, and the original set was uh, just 450s kind of max or middle, you know, your pace to, to put together a race. And we adapted it to a 100-meter race where it would be a dive 20. Yep. Um, so the first one was always the dive. Um, and then the rest would push. Uh, so we did a dive 20 meters, a push 30, a 50 recovery, and then a back-end speed 50. So if you add it up, your 20 and your, your push 30, that's supposed to be your first 50 of your race. 
Um, and then your back end speed was supposed to be hitting that kind of back end speed you want to in your race. So if you added those, those three times together, you should be within 0.5 of what you want your PB to be mm-hmm. and being able to replicate that eight times every Saturday morning. So it's kind of like a broken 100, but over three fifties yeah. with a 50 meter, um, recovery in between, which obviously for sprinters we loved. Um, and we do that set side by side with guys that were doing 200 IMs and they were doing 50 of each stroke. Um, and we'd be doing our recovery when they're doing their breaststroke. You'd touch the wall and you'd, we'd push off as soon as you touched, did your, your push 30 just to get more recovery at the other side. And yeah. you'd watch these guys coming down doing their breaststroke and, um, and they'd be puffing and we'd be all kind of recovered yeah, ready and then to you go. go toe-to-toe in the 50 free um and absolutely throttle them because you were <laughs> you had a lot more in the tank to give and uh, but at the same time it helped you push a bit harder because those guys were still fit and and you know not far off and i, I could never do what they did um assuming that that many hard 50s and still be able to do you know they'd still push us in the 50 free push anyway but it was that sort of competitiveness i liked and um you know even though the the um it was slightly stacked in my favour, getting more recovery. I used that to my advantage, and and still um, still loved getting one over them. But um, that competitive side of it was was a big one for me. You mentioned there those those splits and adding it up to get your hundred time. Talk about your your hundred race plan. Did you have a a specific plan? Was it about easy speed on the way out? You know, feed on wall at a certain pace, stroke rates. Was it very specific? Because Many people have different philosophies in race plans on here. I've had some, mm. some people say as simple as fast down, faster back. And I've had other people get really into it, you know, with the right rate on the way down and it's got to feel easy mm. on the way out. What about for yourself? Uh, we certainly looked at, at, um, at stroke rates and, and certain splits. Um, I guess the, the thing we started with was always trying to be no more than a 1.5 second drop off. Mm-hmm. So from your first 50 to second 50. So, you know, that meant if you went out in a 23.0, you needed to be back in a, a 24.5 um, kind of thing. Um, is that right? Yeah. What was it? I know that adds up. I'm just trying to think <laughs> if the 1.5 is right. Well, maybe it was no more than a two-second drop-off. So, um, yeah, that's kind of what we modelled on. And that was more based on not even splitting, but close, close to, because obviously with a dive, you get a lot more of assistance than, than in a push. So that's kind of where we started thinking of trying to get down to that 1.5 second drop off from a, from an earlier age. Um, and then towards the end, it was more just about um, getting out with easy speed. And that was as simple as it was. And just um, as well as breaking it down into 25 meters. And for me, every time I saw the 25 meter mark, I just try that a little bit harder obviously do the turn, come back to that last 25 and you put your head down and just go for it. So, um, but yeah, we did a lot of work on stroke rates and, and trying to get to the 25 off the dive at a certain speed with a certain sense of ease, I guess. Yeah. For us, it was all about getting that first 50 done as easy as possible and as fast as possible. I think you're dead right with the one and a half. I think I always talk to my kids about two, two second turnaround to the age group swimmers, but I know in the research, having a look at the world's best. So certainly you held a world record at one stage. It's around that the best do it at around that one and a half. Anyone that's going over that. I think that was two seconds for me. I think it was 22, four and 24, six or something. I think from memory, but um, I suppose when you're going out that, that quick getting back one and a half seconds, (laughs) 
would have been a 46 low. So it's going to be a price to pay. Mate, do you think we'll see that world record, you know, get moved anytime soon? Uh, I think it'll, it'll, it'll definitely go at some point. That's for sure. I think the, um, you know, like everything, COVID's causing a lot of, a lot of change for everyone. And I think it'll be interesting um, to see the innovation that happens over this next year with, with people that are in isolation or, or don't have access to obviously doing the amount of races that they usually do. Um, and, and what happens in Tokyo if, if it goes ahead. So it's, um, it could be, a you know, from me, from a business point of view at the moment, it's all about innovating and trying to do things slightly different and, and get a, get a result. And, and maybe this is going to kind of like make people rethink their training. Um, you know, if you're in Melbourne and you can't go to a swimming pool or you're, you're isolated, how are you going to keep fit? And, and does that make a difference to anyone's training regime? You know, you could see some, uh, it'll probably more suit sprinters, the fact that you have to do less at the moment and, and, and think about things differently. Um, you'd think, um, but, but again, you just don't know until, until a 400 meters, you know, maybe Mac does a 400 in, a couple of months time and he's been doing a lot of cycling and doing different ways to keep his anaerobic and his aerobic thresholds up and his shoulders and, and his body isn't as, as, as worn down. He, he could still be fit and still put a good race together. You just don't know. So I think it's, I think if people are keeping an open mind over the next year and just getting up and racing with, with nothing to lose, there could be some interesting results to come from it. Um, from a hundred perspective, you know, it could, could very well go in the next year. Um, I don't think they'll be far off if, if it doesn't because um, I think that type of training will, will lend itself to being in a pandemic. You can, you can try, you can stay strong and as long as your technique's there and you're doing some yeah. stationary swimming, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll lose too much. So um, yeah, it'll be, it's, it's going to be an interesting year to see who navigates it best. From an Aussie perspective, I, I had Greg Troy on um, a few weeks ago and I, I definitely tried to get a bit of an insight into what he's doing with uh, Caleb Dressel. And I can assure you, he didn't give much away. So I tried my best to see what they're up to, but uh, he, he wouldn't give too much away. Uh, hey, talk to me about, I'm always interested for you guys in, in terms of your top three competitors that you love to race, people that you, you enjoy to race. Domestically, when you're at trials and, and things like that, who, who did you like to come up against? Um. I don't know. To be honest, I don't know if I, I thought about that too much. Yeah. I think, um, you know, for me, it was always just about winning. It wasn't about who I loved racing and, and everything. I think for me, it was, um, yeah, I think for, it was probably, probably more from a relay perspective. I enjoyed other teams that you wanted to race against because there was always that sort of that, that tussle. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if, if I'd put it the way that I loved racing against people because I was either nervous that they were going to beat me or I wanted to beat them. It wasn't necessarily a, a you know, uh, never thought about it that way, I guess, to be yeah. honest. Um, what about relay-wise then, mate? When you in with the Aussie boys, who did you, obviously America, but were there any other teams that you loved to come up against? Yeah, America, you know, Russia was, was hard. Japan was always a really good one. I feel like, especially in the IM, we were pretty evenly matched. Um, 
and there was always that you know one step forward, one step back through through the way it went. So I think Japan in 2007 World Champs we were in Melbourne. I think we um, started off in front, then we were behind, and then we managed to come over them at, at, at the end um, to get ahead. And yeah, those sorts of races I always love. South Africa um, in the four by one was great. Um, 2006 World Champ, uh, 2006 Com Games. We just lost to them, I think. Um, in the four by one free. Um, but that just that I just love being neck and neck with people and just having that that um, that real side by side competitions always really, really great, especially when you get to share it with other people. Yeah, well it brings me to, you know, two thousand eleven world champ Shanghai. You win gold with the boys in the four by one. And it's something I think that gets lost in our sport sometimes because it is such an individual sport, but is that team mm. aspect and how much did you enjoy that, you know, with the boys and, and those moments through your career? Yeah, it was and that's kind of I think I, I always was a better relay swimmer than individual somehow. And I think there's Think you probably know what I mean. There's a lot of people that tend to pull things out and realize that they can't do for their individuals. Mm. Um, and I certainly started that way and probably was still, still did better relay splits than I would individually. Um, you know, and it's, it's hard to translate that, that energy and that, um, adrenaline you get with competing with with mates and feeling like you've you've got that responsibility i think when it's just yourself it is hard to to make that shift um but yeah it was it was it was always special for me just you know you first and foremost you don't want to let anyone down um and that's just that feeling i always got walking out with a bunch of mates was so different to walking out by myself um you just that adrenaline and the, the excitement and that i guess it's probably what it would feel like to be part of a team sport every week. And that's kind of be amazing if you could carry that feeling in, into every race. Um, you know, just knowing that someone else has got your back there as well. And I think it does take that, that pressure off, you know, mentally before you even get in the water that it's, it's definitely not over just within your race. There's, there's a lot of people working towards it. So you knew that it wasn't all about you. And I think that's probably where I was able to settle into a better a better mindset from an early age of, you know, I just need to focus on doing my part and then everyone else can do theirs and the race isn't over when I touch the wall. So I think that was kind of what I loved about it. How different were you in marshalling when it was a relay time compared to individually where you, when you're on your own sort of really, you know, focused and didn't talk too much when you're with the boys, you chatted a bit, were you similar? Um, Probably pretty similar. I was always pretty serious in the marshalling area. Um, depending on the environment, I guess if, if if it was a real tense situation, I was always really focused on what I was doing. And I guess from a club perspective, it was always a bit more bit more laid back and it was a bit more of those ones where you'd, you'd want to laugh around and have that, have that experience at a, at a younger age group. But I guess once you got to that international level, it was a little bit more serious and um, that sort of real, um, not solemn attitude, but quite, um, quite reserved and, 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 you know, really focused on the goal. Yeah. Mate, 2012, I think you've been far enough removed now from being a swimmer that I can ask this question without getting you into too much trouble. The backlash that you guys copped following London from the media, from the Australian public, I think everyone wanted to jump on the bandwagon, whether they actually knew what was going on or not, they decided they were going to jump on. Was it fair, do you think, or, or was it a bit unwarranted? Uh, it's, 
I, you know, from a personal perspective, I thought it was unfair. I think there was certainly, um, you know, it's definitely not like the media to make a story out of something that uh, <laughs> is there, but not necessarily as big as what it was. And I think, yeah. um, you know, the performance of the swim team in general wasn't great in 2012. You know, the expected goals it was supposed to have didn't happen. And I think a lot of people um, were expecting it. And I, I, that's probably the hardest thing with, with swimming in general in Australia is that every four years we're the best of what we do in the world. And, and people rely on the swim team at the Olympics to get a lot of the gold medals. Um, in between that, there's not much press around it, right? Yeah. You know, unless you're winning world championships or anything, it's not, oh, guys, there's the, the uh, Pan Pacific Championship Trials on this month in August and we're going to be all about it. It's, um, it is very cyclical uh, in, in the Olympic cycles for us and the coverage we get as athletes and that's sort of what, you know, what makes it a, a lower-paying sport. You know, we're not on TV every weekend competing and big TV rights and, and that's something that I think swimmers have always been pretty happy with and that's, we do it because we love it. Um, so I guess, yeah, it was, it was, I found it disappointing. I found it disappointing for a few different reasons is that, you know, the, the whole toxic stuff I think was taken out of context. I think there was a, a lot of reasons that the, the swim team didn't do well. It, it, from my point of view, it comes from the top. It's not, um, one person on the teams can't affect how a whole team swims. It's, it's, um, you know, that the leadership probably wasn't there in a, in a lot of different avenues, to be honest. And there are a few things that probably happened that people got away with that other people on the team weren't happy with. And, and there was a disconnect, um, I think, you know, as far as the team culture was. And the teams I've been on in the past, it was nothing like 2004, 2008. Um, you know, it just wasn't that, that, that um, leadership or, or camaraderie that we'd had in previous years. So... Um, yeah, it was um, disappointing to say the least. Swimming not to right. say that it was the right, you know, what, what obviously we did. We're not saying it's the right thing to do, but, you know, um, certainly not condoning that sort of behaviour. But at the same time, it was, it was three weeks out from the Olympics, you know. We're in bed by 10pm. Mm. We're up training the next morning. Um, I don't think that's, that's something that, that makes a whole swim team swim badly three weeks at an Olympics. Yeah. So um, it's kind of not to stir things up. That's as much as I'll, I'll probably, uh, there's a lot more to it as well, yeah. which I won't say, but um, you know, from my perspective, it was, it was sort of a shame to, for the media and the Australian media in, in general to, to pump our tires up as a four by one and say, we're the, the weapons of mass destruction and, you know, jump on, Maggie's and, and James Roberts back and, and put that much pressure on them and say we're just going to win and there's no doubt about it, I think. And then turn around when you don't win and tear shreds off you. It's, yeah. it's one of those things that, you know, definitely pretty hard to deal with. I would have hated to be in, in Maggie's position and, and um, you know, us as a team, it, it certainly put a target on our back as to the ones that didn't perform. And I guess personally for me, I felt like I swam a good race and, as good as I could at that time. And, um, you know, it was, it was, yeah, it was pretty, one of those, those stories that you can kind of show what the media is really truly capable of when they want to be. Well, mate, I'll, I'll steer you away from it now. And I want to thank you very much there for your honesty and you didn't have to answer that question. So I definitely appreciate it. How do you look back on your swims though in London results wise for yourself? 
not bad, not great, but not bad. I think, like I said, my, my four years in Sydney wasn't, wasn't the best training that I'd done. And I certainly immensely that put me in a, a different mental space than usual, usual, as well as the fact that Maggie was kicking everyone's ass. And I certainly didn't feel like the swimmer I used to be back, back in the day. So, but I, I think I swam a 47, uh, 40 sweat, 47, eight in the final. Um, no, 40, I think it was a 47. Oh, sorry. 47 zero. I think I split, um, from memory. So certainly, um, you know, a, a way off where I was in 2008, but at the same time I was in shorts and, um, swimming in someone's wash as well the whole way. I think I was on Cullen Jones feet, you know, in his, in his washing machine wash the whole way. Yeah, so you wouldn't have small feet. No, um, you know, and, and, you know, it was, uh, uh, I carried a shoulder injury into that meet as well. So I had to have surgery as soon as I finished that meet. Um, I, I think I was doing maybe a K a day for a month before that meet. So kind of goes to show you that you don't need to be doing Ks to, to swim fast. But, and then I made the, the, the final in the 53, I think I went 20, 21.8 or 21.9 or definitely got under, just under 22. Um, so for me, I ticked the boxes on on what I kind of thought I could achieve and wanted to achieve out of that meet. Definitely not as good as I would have liked to have gone. Um, so I think from 2012, considering the, the four years I had and and having that shoulder injury, I think I did reasonably okay. But it obviously was um, was uh, a different outlook when the media took hold with all what kind of came from that as well. So yeah, it was certainly a, a bittersweet. Uh, what ended up being my last Olympics. Um, if I had have known that, I probably would have, probably would have, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't have done anything differently, to be honest. You can't go back and change what you've done. But at the same time, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a, a disappointing end to an Olympic career. But I was planning on trying to get to a fourth uh, in Rio, but just uh, didn't have it in me. It's something I think that doesn't get talked about enough is that transition period for elite athletes into, you know, we say everyday life, normal life, whatever it may be. Uh, it's not an easy one, um, you know, when you made the decision to hang up the togs. What was that period like for you after that? For some athletes, I know they definitely struggle, you know, to find their identity away from the pool. Did you already have a, a fair idea of where you were headed so it seemed a bit easier for you? Uh I guess I had I had a had a direction to go. I um, always loved cooking when I was younger, and lucky enough did Celebrity Master Chef when I was in Sydney, and and had that opportunity. Um, I always wanted to have a small cafe after I left school. Like I sort of mentioned before, I didn't really have a passionate school or a, or a direction I wanted to head in an academic sense. Um, hospitality and, and cooking was always something I enjoyed. So that was something I, I definitely always wanted to get into and. I'd opened the cafe in 2011 after the world champs in Shanghai and Perth. Um, so that was kind of already there for me. Um, and I'd, I'd signed up to do another restaurant in 2013, which I think, no, yeah, we'd opened Bib and Tucker um, before I started swimming again with that shoulder injury. Um, and we are just about to open a third in 2015, which is just before I retired. So I think I definitely obviously had stuff going on and I hadn't, created those businesses to necessarily work in them. It was more of a, I guess, an investment or trying to have something that I could sort of keep my mind on when I'm just outside of swimming to have something to, to, to not just be 100% about swimming. Um, 
uh, and we had people running it at the time and it wasn't necessarily my job to be part of it. And I think uh, the decision kind of came from my now, not from my now wife, but she um, certainly asked a question that made me think about sport a little bit differently. And I think it's something you don't ask yourself along the years. Um, I think it was, I was just about to have my second shoulder operation. Or was it my third? I think it was my third. Um, yeah, it was my third. So I'd had two, done my comeback, qualified for, for Com Games in Glasgow um, and swam a pretty reasonable 50. And straight after that meet, I had to have another shoulder surgery to, to do another clean out. Um, and yeah, uh, like I said before, when, when I was you know, mentally down, it was always due to injuries. And I yeah. had a couple of days of feeling bad about myself and being negative and being grumpy and well is me and I always found a way to kind of snap back out of it and, and get motivated again and this time around yeah Naomi kind of just said you're, you're miserable I'm like yeah it's kind of just what happens when I get injured I feel crap and I I get over it and I come back and, and, and get back into it she's like well why do you do it if it makes you miserable and I, I've never thought about that before and yeah, um, yeah I ended up quitting the next day um, quitting, retiring, um, but I think that 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 sort of question really made me think about my priorities in life and where I was at. And I, I think it came down to the way I thought about it was I was trying to make my fourth Olympics and, and be the first male to uh, Australian swimming male to to go to four. Um, and I think deep down it was maybe on the back of 2012 and the disappointment of, of how that ended that I wanted to leave a little bit of a legacy and. But I, I realised that it wasn't a legacy necessarily for me and something that I really wanted to achieve. It was a, it was a thing to do and it was an achievement, but I, I wasn't desperate to do it. I think it was more that 2012 wanting to sort of right that wrong, I guess, for in a, in a certain way. Um, but the way I looked at it was I had two years left um, and it wasn't a guarantee that I'd make the Olympic team. It was, yeah. it was a, a possibility. Um, but I had uh, two businesses and soon to be three that were a, a definite that I had. And uh, the possibility there was if I didn't jump into that 100%, uh, they could fail. Uh, I could miss an opportunity to turn them into a business that would, you know, I guess from a, a life after swimming, you start thinking about money a lot more. Um, and, you know, if I got those right, it could set me up for the rest of my life as opposed to committing myself to swimming for the next two years for the possibility to make an Olympic team. And even, even if I made that team, it didn't mean that I'd financially be better off or that my life would be any better for it. Um, I think I started thinking about the, the relationship of a swimming career is five to 10 years, you know, my life after, even if I had made the Olympics, I still had, you'd like to think 60 years to live at least. No. Well, 50 to 60, thereabouts, depending on how healthy I was going to be. Um, and I just started thinking about that and what, what decision was going to be best for me long-term. And for me, it was jumping into business and focusing on on life and kind of not um, thinking of it as a, as a, as a competition anymore. And, and the priorities of my life, I think, started to shift at that point. Business was starting to take off and I had an opportunity to learn a lot more and and to grow as a as a business owner, as opposed to the jumping in the pool and doing what I've always done and, and assuming that that was going to be um, life-changing, which is where the decision ended up. Hey, do you think that'll ever change? And I certainly, I've started this podcast 
to help, you know, tell the stories of swimmers here in Australia and, and the legendary swimmers such as yourself and the young swimmers coming up. I have quite a lot of age group athletes coming up to help, you know, you get their story out there. Hopefully maybe, you know, um, sponsors can jump on board with those guys, help them out, whether it may just be, you know, with equipment, things like that. Do you think ever we'll get to a stage where, you know, the ISL is at the moment, um, you know, mm-hmm. and that's bringing in some good money for swimmers, but it's, it does seem like a shame that, you know, for you guys who are at the elite level that you, you know, you, you can't really make a, a great living out of it. I mean, you can probably get by and you can do enough to do mm-hmm. what you've got to do, but you're not necessarily setting your life up like a footballer would be or a basketballer would be able to. Yeah, exactly right. I think, um, you know, I was lucky enough, obviously, to, to break a world record when I was at that point that I was happy getting by. You know, we don't make a lot of money, but at the same time, you don't have any expenses. Um, yeah. You know, if you make it to that national team or just, just close to, you, you travel the world for free, you, you live in hotels and you get fed along the way and, yeah, the money that you do make is usually savings because you're if you're travelling that much, you're not paying rent if you're living with your family. And I think I was in that position that I was able to to get to that point um, relatively cost free and and to not be too stressed about money. But I, I definitely think once you get to that sort of eighteen to to twenty three mark, if you're not um, if you're not uh, lucky enough to be in that position, reality knocks on your door pretty a lot earlier than, it, than I think it did for me. And you're usually studying and, and thinking about your career life after swimming. And, mm. you know, you have to make, you know, I think a lot of swimmers have to make a choice of, of, you know, how passionate am I about this to be willing to commit myself a hundred percent to get to that next level when I've got rent due and I'm not getting paid that much from swimming. And I think, yeah, a lot of people are forced to, to give up something that they potentially could have made a living out of due to the fact that they need to make a living in the immediate, um, you know, in the now as opposed to down the track. So I think that's, yeah, sort of what I was saying before with, you know, the broadcasting and, and um, you know, not being on the TV every weekend with, uh, with sponsors and advertisers, definitely the flow and effect from that is, is always going to be there for swimming. And I guess the, the ISL stuff, I've started seeing bits about that. I still don't quite understand it, to be honest. Like I, I um, haven't looked into it too much, but I, I think it's great. I think anything that can, that can give swimmers more money and more opportunities to race against each other and to, 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 to be bettering themselves and also to be earning money, I think it's, it's great. You know, I remember the Qantas Skins was always the one that we looked forward to because yeah. um, it was money on offer and... Um, you know, it was pretty rare for that to happen. So I think it's great that the, the swimmers have a lot more opportunities to make money. And also, you know, swimwear sponsorship and branding was always, you know, speedo um, growing up. And especially at the Olympic level, if you're not an Olympic sponsored athlete, if you have a sponsor, you can't really promote their brand at the Olympics or even if it's a, a national team, you have to take the logos off. So the, the, the opportunities are pretty limited for us as, as swimmers. So it's definitely not the easiest one to make a living from, but I guess, you know, if you get to that level, you can make a living from it. But, um, yeah, it's a, like I said, it's a, a five to 10 year window. It's, um, you know, you, you've got to have your, your other, your plan B ready as well. Mate, we've, we've mentioned celebrity master chef a few times Has food and cooking always been a passion of yours. And the second question to that is in that competition, how much of the swimmer, the sprinter came out in you and, and just, try, you know, wanting, wanting that win um yeah cooking was always a always a passion for me it, 
it started at school. Um, I just I loved home economics because you could always eat during class, and um, I used to be quite a fussy eater growing up. So it was I, um, you know, I'd have nachos with cheese only, and not have salsa and anything else on top of it. I wouldn't try anything new because I just I didn't didn't want a bar of it. And I think once I started cooking at school, I went from just saying no to everything to to when you actually cook them, you realise what goes in it. So I think the first dish we cooked was beef stroganoff, which to an immature 12 year old, you think it looks a little bit like diarrhea. Mm-hmm. So I was always quite hesitant to, to try that. And then you realize it's beef stock and cream and beef and there's stuff in there that individually you quite like it. Um, and then I went from being the fussiest eater to now, if I go out for dinner, I will try something I've never had before because I, I you know, I enjoy that exploring stuff now and, and trying things and, and make out my mind as opposed to when I was younger, my mind was already made up and that just sort of blossomed into that next step of my swimming career is taking a lot more responsibility for what I put in my body. I started learning, you know, that scrambled eggs, if you're eating out, is full of cream and butter. Um, is that the smartest thing to have when you're trying to maintain a certain weight? Um, you know, how much sugar's in things? And I, that's where I started looking into my food a lot more and taking a lot more responsibility and, and that's when my body sort of changed from a, a, a skinny and chubby sort of 13-year-old to when I got to, to 18. I was pretty lean and mean and, and um, still skinny, but, um, but a lot leaner and um, a lot more uh, focused on what I was putting into my body. And then that just transitioned into me wanting to get into hospitality and open a cafe because I enjoyed cooking. And, um, yeah, the MasterChef opportunity came from that and my my managers knowing that I enjoyed cooking and wanted to open a cafe and they saw that as a as a good platform to to put my passions in place and it, it came on the back of, of pulling out of the 2009 world champs when I had a had a virus and it was kind of a uh, the right opportunity at the right time that I had some time off and I could you know put some passion into that and try and sort of hit the reset button mentally And then part B of that one, yes, the competitive side of me came out. Um, You know, I I practiced for months leading into that. I had people over for dinner every Friday, Saturday night. I was cooking. You know, the signature dish we had to do in our first episode, I probably cooked about 30 times to make sure that I memorized the recipe and I got it right and I knew how to do it. Um, So, yeah, I was was pretty pretty full-on through that period. Have you gone on to, I know, obviously as a coach, we always look to mentors. Have, have you looked at any, you know, mentors within the restaurant business, any, you know, um, chefs, anyone to, to reach out to for information and, and advice? Uh, uh, not mentors as such. I've certainly reached out to as many people as I could in the early days when we were opening venues and I had no idea what I was doing. Kind of that attitude of, oh, you'll be right. I'll just yeah. buy this and do that and figure it out along the way. I think the reality once you see all the money going out of your bank account, you go, oh, I've actually got to make this work so yeah. I don't go bankrupt. Um, but, you know, I think from a business point of view, it's been more, um, a lot of books out there that are just similar to swimming. It's just learning. It's learning how to do things better, how to do things more efficiently, um, different techniques and different things of, of how to manage cash flows. And there's a lot of different things you have to understand, but, it's no different to learning a sport and learning a technique and learning how to put a race together. It's, it's planning, um, planning on paper and having a long-term plan and goal setting. And that's kind of what you learn as an athlete, as a swimmer. Um, it's just putting into a different context. So 
I think that that mindset from being a swimmer kind of transitioned to being a, a business owner and it takes a lot of dedication and planning and, and um, willingness to, to learn and innovate and, and to get better and better every day just by that 1%, which is kind of what we do as athletes. You've got a young family, as I do, and something I always like to ask my guests, especially you guys who have gone into you know, successful business ventures, Grand Hackett, I've had Gian on. How do you find the balance with work and, and home life? I know for me, as I've said a few times, you know, it's not always easy with podcast and being a head coach and then still finding time to, to have a bit of fun with uh, mm. you know, my now two-year-old daughter. What about for yourself? Uh, definitely goes through peaks and troughs depending on what's going on. I think, um, yeah, it's hard, hard to get that balance. I mean, we've, we've, we've gone pretty hard and fast in the last sort of six years from, um, having one to five to now four after the pandemic, we had one, um, terminated recently, which was, uh, not the worst thing, but at the same time, you know, it's been an interesting couple of months and certainly when you're in the thick of it, I think the same as when you're, when you're training hard, it's, it's hard to, to step back and go, am I doing this the right way? I think when you're busy, keeping busy, um, it's hard to keep that balance and to think about everything going on in your life and make sure you're giving the right attention to it all. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely times where you, you just don't have an option, especially when you're a business owner. You can't say, oh, I'll just leave that to next week and go home so I can spend time with my family. If you need to get something done, you kind of need to, but it's, it's a little bit like being an athlete is that you have to be selfish to a degree to, to get the result you want. Um, and when you're a swimmer, you have to say no to friends and family and, and, you know, um, focus on what's best for you. And I think there's an element of that from a business owner that you have to have to do what's best for your business so that it makes money so you can support your family. But at the same time, you've got to make sure you, you have things in place that you do spend the time with your family that needs to. And I think it, it definitely took me a while to, to get to that point. Um, but also the pandemic, I think, really highlighted, not just to me, but a lot of people, it was a bit of a reality check as well because you had time to stop and think. You know, we were, I was getting ready for four months of, of being closed down um, and luckily enough, Perth, we were kind of back up and running two weeks after um, in some capacity and, and now we're kind of open again. And I think in that two-week period, I've spent the most time with my family I have um, in the last three years since we've had Leo and, and now Olivia. Um, certainly made me realise how much I miss out on during the day, but that's just a reality of, of working, doing a working week. But also, I guess, it gave me time to think about what I wanted over the next couple of years. So I think my priorities have, have changed a little bit again since the pandemic. And it, it's, you know, it sounds bad to say, but it's kind of been, it was good to have that time to reflect. And I think it's pretty rare when you're so focused on on improving and getting better and, and developing business and same as being an athlete, that you don't really stop and take the time to think about um, am I doing it the best way I can to, to keep my mental state where it needs to be as well as still get the results but also do things to, to enjoy. And I think being an athlete, sometimes you can go so hard, you can neglect what's actually good for you as well and diet too much or train too hard and, and not step back and go, hang on, I think I'm going a bit too crazy at the moment. So I think we're getting to that point and luckily we've been pulled back a bit and um, yeah, I've had some time to think about that and reassess uh, my the balance of my life. So starting to get to that point again. Hey, outside of the office, what, what do you get up to to unwind and relax? You follow footy over there. What do you get up to? 
nothing with kids at the moment. <laughs> I think um, that's always what comes last is that that me time now, especially with kids. You sort of come home from work and it's getting them to bed yep. and you're planning what you're doing with them on the weekend and it does revolve around them, which is great. Um, and because they're young and don't have much much to do. But, yeah, I suppose footy's probably the only thing that I, you know, um, I do follow religiously now is the AFL and, um, you know, it's either going to the game, so I'm an Eagles member, I'll either go to the game or watch on TV. That's kind of my one thing I'll do each week now and I, I have to fight for it still. But I, <laughs> I make sure I either watch it with Leo now, he's at the age he can, or I get to the game or, or go to a pub with a couple of mates and, and just have that sort of de-stress time. I think it's really important to have that time to yourself and to do what makes you happy. Have you been to the new Perth Stadium, the, the big U-Butte Stadium over there? Yeah, yeah. I was there quite a bit last year. The last couple of years I've been a member, so it's pretty good. Um, at the moment, I'm not going in just from a – can't be bothered, but at the same time, just with everything the way it is, I don't want to try and think that there's nothing wrong and, and yeah. turn up, even though you can. Um, but also just happy to be home. But, yeah, it's great. Great facility. Um pretty amazing when there's 60,000 people in there for a game. It's um, as close as the MCG you'll get. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a great little spot. Yeah, it looks impressive. I definitely, uh, myself, my wife, we've been planning a trip for some time to head over. Hopefully, you know, I'm not... To so, wait a little bit longer, not, I think. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I'm not so fussed on coming for an AFL game. I know they had State of Origin over there not long ago, so maybe I might yeah. wait till there's a rugby... Maybe the cricket. I know they've had a few cricket games, but it's definitely impressive. I, I know yeah. that. I definitely want to want to get in there. Now, mate, I'm going to finish this with uh, just a little few quick... Um, rapid fire questions that I think gives us a little bit more of an insight into what you're like at home in terms of, you know, what music you listen to or what your favorite movies are. Um, sometimes in actual fact, we go through an hour and a half sometimes of chatting to people. And these are the questions that stump people because they haven't <laughs> actually thought of uh, the answers uh, too much before. So we'll see how we go with this. Um, yeah. What's your favorite music to listen to? I don't really have any, to be honest. I I listen to the radio in the car because yeah. I can't be bothered trying to organise. I don't. I don't. Not great with organising music on my iPod, iTunes, all that stuff. I just never got into it. I'm not a, a muso, I guess. But do you um, listen to I podcasts just, in the car? Yeah, yeah. I listen to podcasts uh, or the radio, or yeah. I make phone calls when I'm driving just to yeah. chat and catch up with people. My uh, family always know when I'm driving because I call them. So yeah. uh, if I if I call my brother. He'll go, you're driving home from work, aren't you? I say, yeah, well, yeah. you know, what else am I going to do? You know, it's, it's, <laughs> a, it's a perfect time to call you. As, yeah. as, as you know, mate, as soon as we get in the door, it's, it's daddy. And then yeah. there's no time for phone yeah. calls. That's can't get sure. home and then make a phone call. That's no sure. chance. What about favorite movies to watch? What do you love? Um, I like stupid comedies, Anchorman, yep. ones that you can just laugh at. Um, that's always my go-tos, you know, Jim Carrey growing up, Ace Ventura, um, all those sorts of ones. That's kind of my go-to, um, that and kind of, um, ones with good twists, I guess, movies with twists. I always like that little last segment or last, uh, last scene where everything just unravels and you have that aha moment. Mm. I tell you, uh, if you've got, have you got Netflix? Yes. Okay. There's a movie called I See You. I don't know if you've okay. seen it yet, but just Sounds sit that scary. and watch when you, when you have time. No, I mean, 
Oh, well, I'm not going to give too much away. But if you like twists, okay. that one okay. definitely uh, yeah, had me thinking, scratching my head. I see you. Okay. Um, and just think, talking about uh, Will Farrell movies, um, when, when Grant was on the other day and he said about, you know, his silvers being failures, I couldn't help myself. And I said, uh, you know, it reminds me of Talladega Nights and Ricky Bobby and that if you're not first, you're last. And I did, I was hoping he took it as funny and he did. He laughed because I was like, oh, I hope this is going to go down well because I, I wasn't trying to offend him, but couldn't help it. As he said, I was like, that's Ricky Bobby for you. It is one of his favourite movies. I remember we watched it once together on a swimming trip, so it's uh, quite relevant. I got lucky. Uh, what about, you know, as you said, you love your food. What's your favourite meal? Uh, meal, anything just salty and chilli and spicy and savoury. I'm a savoury man, so okay. I, love a good, I love a good pizza like anyone. Um, I have a lot of favourites. Kettle chili chips is my favourite snack. Okay. They're just the best chips in the world. Probably the MSG, but they're delicious. Um, and anything sort of, yeah, chili, like a nice prawn and chili gnocchi or something, something sort of warming. And I like that sort of comfort food. In terms of countries, I know we, we discussed the other day about San Sebastian. What are some of your favourite mm. countries that you've visited? Uh, Spain's definitely up there. Um, that was pretty amazing. So, yeah, that's uh, San Sebastian and, and all through the south. Uh, Positano in Italy was really, really nice holiday spot. Um, Barcelona, like I said, Spain was pretty good. Um, well, Japan Japan's my favourite place yeah. to go. Uh, the food, the culture, the history um, and the people were just um, – and the transport. It's just so easy and safe and fantastic. It's just always something you can find. It's amazing. Do you go skiing over there? I know a lot of people go for skiing. Yeah, I was never a big skier or snowboarder growing up, but we went for the first time uh, a couple of years ago and, and started skiing then. And it's kind of where we got engaged and went on our honeymoon and, and taken our kids before. So it's, it's quite a um, – you can kind of do everything over there. It's great. How do you hold up when you're skiing? I mean, you seem to find yourself in getting injured a bit. You, you manage to, to come just, away unscathed. The things I shouldn't get injured at, I get injured. <laughs> and the things I should, I, I'm usually okay. So, um, but yeah, I had a few big stacks that you, I thought I thought I uh, busted my knee, but yeah. um, just made for a good video. Mate, finally, what about some favourite quotes? Are you are you a man who loves his quotes? Uh, back in the day, I used to, I guess. Um, the one I used to always live by was pain is weakness living the body. I think it was a Navy SEALs mantra. Um, I guess that's kind of how I justified all the injuries I had and the pain of having to, to strengthen up muscles again and go through that rehab and all the injuries. So that was probably the biggest one for me. It sticks out. Mate, finally, what do you want your legacy to be in the sport? I mean, some people are not phased on this. Some people don't even mm. think about the question. And I know Grant the other day said he'd never actually thought about it. That wasn't something that come across his mind. If I say to, you know, someone uh, mention your name, Eamon Sullivan, how do you want to be remembered as, a, as an athlete and as a swimmer? Oh, probably, probably the same as Grant. I guess I, I um, never really thought about that, but I guess... Um, probably just persistent, <laughs> you know, yeah. I think, um, I kind of, I was thinking of talking about someone else, I was going to, doing a talk for someone else in a couple of weeks and 
we were talking about the theme of what I was going to talk about and it really is just persistence and um, perseverance. I was, I was always, you know, um, I was persistent. I just didn't give up. And I guess that's the only thing that I, I, I like to think of myself as in general. So I think if that's, doesn't seem like a great word to be thought of, but at the same time, it's kind of, that was the persistence in injuries and, and stuff. And, and what I got through is kind of how I got to where I got to and persevering and, um, you know, um, yeah, I guess if that is acceptable. Mate, it's definitely, anything you say is acceptable, mate. So it's all good. <laughs> now I want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I know how busy you are. As I said, we've been trying to get this together for a while and, and I know you're a busy man and you know, I've been busy too with, with getting other interviews set up. So thank you very much. It's been a privilege, um, you know, to, to go through your, your career. And, you know, I, I think you're a champion in and out of the pool, mate. And I think sometimes you, you don't get enough credit for, for what you did for swimming here in Australia and definitely the sprinters and, and inspiring that, that next generation. I think most definitely you're one of the toughest, most determined. Um, you know, I think determined is probably the word I'd use for you in terms of, you know, yeah. not letting things get in the way of, of where you wanted to go. And as I said to you before, mate, I don't think that's an easy thing. I think that's definitely, uh, you know, sets you apart from, from everyone else. But, uh, in, you know, until we chat again next time, mate, thank you very much for coming on Off The Block Swimming Podcast. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Today's episode of Off The Block Swimming Podcast is proudly sponsored, as always, by Pro Swim Workouts. Tomorrow on the show, we have one of New Zealand's fastest rising stars, a young female athlete who is certainly turning some heads at the moment with the time she is posting in the pool. So don't miss my chat with Kiwi young gun, Erica Fairweather. Until then though, guys, don't forget you can catch all the best bits of the podcast on our brand new YouTube channel. Head over now for some entertainment and some laughs. Keep smiling and it's bye for now. I just wanna be with you. Oh, 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 oh,